Welcome to the first episode of the America's Quarterly Podcast, a conversation on business, politics, and culture in Latin America. I'm your host, Brian Winter. Polls show that Chile wants a new constitution, but is that the best idea for the country? A new constitution does not automatically create a middle class. It's not the way to go. If it were, Latin American countries would have the largest middle class in the world because we have had more constitutions than any other region in the world. Well, it's been four months since protests first erupted in Chile, but for me personally, the shock has still not quite worn off. Seeing a country that had such success over a 30-year period and not only growing the economy, but reducing poverty, had amazing progress on social indicators like infant mortality explode in protests was a shock. And look, I mean, we all have learned since then that the Chilean story was always more complicated than that, but still. And in response, the government of Sebastián Piñera promised to hold a, a referendum on April 26th that will determine if and how a new constitution will be drafted. And yet, at the same time, demonstrations have continued. On March 3rd, there were protests resulting in nearly 300 arrests, and the Interior Ministry also reported that 76 police were injured. So this is very much an ongoing story. People are, are still out in the streets. Our guest today on the inaugural edition of the America's Quarterly Podcast is my friend Patricio Navia, who is a contributing columnist for AQ. He's also the professor of liberal studies at NYU and a professor of political science at Diego Portales University in Chile. Patricio, welcome to the AQ Podcast. Thanks for the invite. So, Patricio, days after the protests erupted last October, again, shocking many of us, you wrote the following in an article for America's Quarterly. You said, the real reasons behind the rage lie in the frustration of a population that was promised access to the promised land of middle-class status, but has been denied such access at the gate due to an unlevel playing field characterized by an abusive elite, an unresponsive government, and an unkept promise of meritocracy and equal opportunity. Those were strong words. And, you know, actually that was, that was the most read piece that we had at America's Quarterly in 2019. It really struck a nerve. And at a time oh, cool. when, when everybody was looking for sort of insight into what was happening, um, they found it in that piece. Here we are. Uh, four months later, and your tune has changed, and uh, at least it seems like to me, and, and you have written several pieces in the Chilean press saying that you will vote against this referendum for a new constitution. So, Patricio, why did you change your mind? I haven't. Um, I think Chileans want access. They want to be a part of this Chile that everyone talks about. High levels of inequality result in the fact that about 75% of Chileans have salaries below the mean. So when we talk about Chile's GDP, when we talk about the averages, uh, we're really talking about an elite, not about the bulk of the population. Those people want to live in the Chile that everyone talks about outside Chile. So they want access to this so-called promised land. I mean, Chile is a country with low levels of poverty, but there is marginalization, right? So people are not poor by Latin American standards, but they see that others are much better than they are in terms of access to opportunities, and they went in. So you support the overall cause, but then why is a new constitution not the answer? Well, I think 
a new constitution by itself is not sufficient, nor is it necessary. A constitution itself will not solve the problem of inequality, and democracy does not coexist with high levels of inequality because people will vote for redistribution. You need to create a strong middle class, and Chile has lagged behind in creating that strong middle class. My objection is that a new constitution does not automatically create a middle class. It's not the way to go. If it were, Latin American countries would have the largest middle class in the world because we have had more constitutions than any other region in the world. But moreover, the constitutional process that Chile is about to begin in April is going to take two years. And in those two years, there will be no economic investment. The economy is going to be stagnant. And at the end of those two years, that emerging middle class will feel that they are now even farther away from that promised land than they were when the riots began in October 2019. Let's, let's, let's back up here to just say, I'm sure, though, that the defenders of the Constitution would argue, yeah, of course it's not going to solve everything with kind of a magic stroke of a pen, but it's a precondition to spelling out a new kind of social charter that does not start from the period of Augusto Pinochet, right. which is when the right. current Chilean Constitution comes right. from. So that's the problem of the Constitution, right? The current one, it started, it was promulgated under uh, the military dictatorship in 1980. It has been reformed several times since 1990. And when you talk to people about the changes they want in the Constitution, the laundry list of changes is rather limited. The biggest problem with the Constitution is the origin of the Constitution. But that reminds me of Luke Skywalker in Star Wars, right? The origin might be a bad origin, but you can still build a political system that is sufficiently inclusive. Even if Darth Vader is your father, you can still succeed in life? Is yes, you can still build a democratic society. In fact, Chile was able to build a democratic society out of a constitution designed to prevent the emergence of democracy. So discussing the origin of the constitution now is kind of silly. But it's interesting, though, right? Because I, I, in all the conversations I've had over the last four months about Chile, and it is amazing the extent to which I, I recently traveled in, in Colombia and Mexico and was on the road, and all anybody wanted to talk about was Chile. And one of the things I said was, you know, you look at how painful these last couple months have been and all the deaths that there have been as a result of these protests and all the disruption of the economy as well. And look, I hesitate to describe any process that involves the deaths of more than two dozen people as, as necessary. But if you back up a bit and you look at Chile as a story of progress over the last 30 years, reduction of poverty and all the, all the strides that it's made, my thought is if you believe that Chile is on this path to advanced nation status, maybe it was never going to get there with a Pinochet-era constitution and a Latin America-style social pyramid. And maybe this whole process that we've seen right now is a very um, tumultuous and in many ways tragic step further down that road, but ultimately you know, was, was necessary in some ways to get rid of that stain, which was the 73 to 90 dictatorship. What do you think of that theory? Well, again, you cannot get rid of the past, right? You cannot deny the past. And it's interesting that the debate on the new constitution in Chile did not start in 1990. The 
debate on a new constitution only began after Pinochet died in late 2006. So it seems to me this is more of a psychological question than a legal debate. When you talk to people as to, okay, so what's wrong in the constitution other than the origin? They will give you a laundry list of minor, not that significant reforms. If your problem is the, ori is the origin of the constitution, then maybe if we write a constitution that is exactly like the current constitution, will you be happy? And people say, well, yes, we'll be happy. <laughs> But you're going round the block to end up in the same place. I think that's too high of a cost to pay um, to write a whole new constitution. So let's talk about that. Why is the cost high? I mean, look, at some level, if people have a problem with the origin and a democracy, if people want to have a new constitution, why not just write a new constitution? What's the harm? Does this have to do with the timing of way, the way the next couple of years are set up? Oh, writing a new constitution is like building a new uh, house. Um, it's going to take time, and you're going to have to do something in the meantime. So the constitutional process in Chile is going to take at least two years, and that means that for the next two years there is going to be economic uncertainty. Most investment decisions uh, will not be made because people will decide to wait and to see what kind of constitution comes out. And that's already kind of happening. That's already happening, yeah. yes. I mean, we've we've yeah. seen a downturn yeah. in the Chilean economy pretty severe since since October. Right. So do you really want to build a new house or do you want just to remodel the house and make some improvements uh, to the house? Talk to me a little bit about how President Piñera has handled this whole crisis, going back to October and, and continuing through to the process to call the referendum and continuing today where you still see these protesters on the street. In many cases, we've seen violence in places like Viña del Mar and in Santiago as well. So Piñera has been more part of the problem than the solution, and, and, and that's, um, that's not good. Chile has a very strong presidential system. Um, since democracy was restored, we didn't have a case of a president with single-digit um, approval numbers um, yeah, I mean, for at, several he's months. He's at five or six. Also between six and ten, depending on, depending on the poll. Um, so I think Piñera trapped between a rock and a hard place. Um, on the one hand, he knows he has to make concessions. Um, the program he wanted to implement um, did not have enough support in the population or in Congress. So he was stuck for about a, a year and a half, and then the protests uh, erupted. So he has to make some changes to his original roadmap. Um, now, the changes he's now proposing, a whole new constitutional process, will consume the rest of his administration. Um, but people are demanding some um, higher spending, higher social spending reforms, and that means that he's going to have to give in. In fact, Chile this year will probably have a um, fiscal deficit of 5% of GDP. So this is a huge deficit. It's a lot Chile, for Chile, yeah. right? And that deficit is going to mostly going to be a long-term deficit because it's increases in pensions and social spending. So this is not sort of a one-shot um, stimulus package. And then Piñera has the problem of restoring public order. And, and this is probably his biggest challenge uh, right now, because he does not want to go down in history as a human rights violator. And the Carabineros police already has a lot of difficulties controlling riots and responding to riots. But on the other hand, uh, those riots are getting out of hand. And on the one hand, he's making some concessions that are really um, costly in terms of uh, fiscal spending. And on the other, he's not able to restore public order. And he's still being accused of being a human rights violator. So he's uh, losing at all levels. I was surprised when I was in Colombia. I had a meeting with a group of Colombian business leaders at the degree of anger 
at Piñera and believing that he had essentially sold out not only Chile, but also, you know, in the case of Colombia, it was the case in the region where the, the contagion was the clearest, right? They had protests in Colombia that were also pretty, I think, the clearest case of copycat demonstrations based on Chile. And what these business leaders were saying was that, was that you know, Piñera claudicó, that he basically lost his nerve and he gave in when he should not have. What do you what do you think of that well, criticism? I, I think in terms of um, democratic accountability and what elections are for. So Piñera won a democratic election, fair and square, in 2017. And he campaigned against a new constitution. So when Chileans had the opportunity to vote, they voted for a candidate who promised market-friendly reforms and uh, campaigned against a new constitution. But I am concerned as to the consequences of the riots in Chile. Because democracy is supposed to work with elections, right? People vote, they vote for a candidate with a program, and that then that candidate implements uh, the program he or she campaigned on. And then four years later, people go and vote again, and they decide to reward that candidate or punish the candidate and vote for the opposition and a different program. But if in the middle of the term, uh, people go out and start protesting, and they force the government to change the roadmap uh, for the next two years, then elections are far less significant. And moreover, I mean, yes there are democratic no, right? mandates. But isn't governability always an issue? And don't populations always kind of have the right to change their mind? I mean, if you see something like 1.8 or 1.6 million people in the streets in a country like of 18 million, like like Chile, that's right. a sign that you need to change people, your tax. People were certainly discontent. Piñera's approval was very low. But yes, people were upset with the things that Piñera was doing. And the message was very clear. You need to move towards improving pensions. You need to move towards improving salaries. But there wasn't a demand for a new constitution. The demand for a new constitution was put in after uh, the riots began. So there is a problem with democratic accountability there. And if we're going to hear the voice of the people and governments are going to be responsive to the voice of the people, um, starting a new constitutional process um, was not the response people were asking for. Now, people want a new constitution in Chile now because they associate the new constitution with expanding rights. So they are going to be in for a big surprise when they get the new constitution and salaries do not go up by 100% and pensions do not go up by 300%, which is what people expect will happen. So let's talk about the protests. Um, there's been tremendous violence associated with these. And look, I lived through the Brazilian protests of 2013 where you had a million people on the streets in one night and yet nobody died in those. And in Chile, which is a country which is significantly less violent on a statistical basis than Brazil, you've had more than two dozen deaths. I think it's important to note that the, some of these deaths have been the result of violence by the police. But explain to us why, why has this process taken so many lives in Chile, and, and do you think it's going to continue to be bloody as we move towards this, this referendum in April? There is some political violence, and, and that's probably a legacy of the military dictatorship. The police, the Chilean Carabineros police, lacks legitimacy for a number of reasons, because of human rights violations during the dictatorship, because of the protocols that they have used after um, the military dictatorship, after democracy was restored, and also because of some corruption scandals um, among the elites of the Carabineros police. So they don't have enough legitimacy, and that produces a problem, because when the police shows up, people start throwing rocks at them. So it's difficult for the police to um, 
restore public order because their mere presence is not significant. The police are also more likely to repress people who are protesting peacefully than people who are being violent at them because those people who are violent, who are throwing rocks, normally outnumber the police and the police are not going to shoot in Chile, so they normally retreat and they go away. The police are at fault for many things they do, but the way in which protesters respond to the presence of police officers uh, is not conducive to a healthy uh, democratic system. You've been you've been very critical of the protesters on Twitter and elsewhere saying things to the effect of it's Friday, what are they destroying today? Right. Well, every Friday there are fires. Um, there are lots of people at fault here. But um, the point that I want to make is that in a well-functioning democracy, people respect police officers. The police also conducts themselves differently than they do in Chile. So there are lots of problems in Chile, but violence on both sides is a significant problem. So, Patricio, we've been painting a pretty bleak picture here um, with continued violence, with all this political uncertainty because of the referendum pending. If the, re- if the referendum succeeds, then you have to wait two years for a new constitution. There's a presidential election in the middle, too. Chile's economy is already um, in believed to be in recession. To just back up for a moment, if you're somebody watching Chile from the outside, whether it's a, a, an investor or, or a concerned member of civil society, where do you think all this is headed? I mean, is this going to, is this continued kind of disorder and instability for the next two years? So I think there are uh, three likely scenarios. Um, the worst scenario is that Chile turns into the new Venezuela in 20 years. Um, the middle road scenario is that Chile becomes Argentina. And um, the I guess best case scenario is that Chile has kind of a Brazil uh, reaction. And after two years, uh, Chileans end up voting for a law and order candidate that will restore um, sort of some of the basic uh, market-friendly principles. Well, I'm not sure that any listeners who followed Chile for a long time would see either Venezuela, Argentina, or Brazil as good outcomes to this based on the way you just described them. Well, Yes, but that's th- those are the choices I think uh, Chile has uh, in the future. I don't think Chile will go back to being what it was in, in 2016 or 2017. Uh, and the problem being that uh, Chile didn't do what it had to do. And what Chile had to do was to achieve better distribution of income and better distribution of opportunities. They didn't do that. And now the social contract has broken down. How likely? So let's go through each of those scenarios and think about percentages here. I mean, the Venezuela scenario, I mean, that seems pretty unlikely. Wouldn't you agree? I mean, what you're talking about is breakdown of the state, hard left taking power, total disregard for capitalism and the greatest economic collapse outside of war and modern history. I don't think that's going to happen. But then again, when I first um, was an undergraduate at the University of Illinois in 1988, and this is what I learned. Venezuela is the most stable democracy in Latin America. And Venezuela was the most stable democracy in Latin America in 1988. Chile was making a transition to democracy. Uh, Pinochet was still in power. And I learned that, but I also learned that Venezuela had three problems. High levels of inequality, 
It was too dependent on one commodity and it had an increasingly corrupt business and political class. And now I teach that Chile is the most stable democracy in Latin America, but Chile has three problems, um, which are the same problems. Now, the problems in Chile are not as bad as they were in Venezuela in 1988, and Chile is not in the middle of an economic crisis, but that's the worst case scenario. I don't think we will end there, but that has been the history of Latin America. So we cannot forget that Chile is also a Latin American country. Well, and, and to your point, in this part of the world, and maybe in the world generally, you just never know. And countries can take a wrong turn. Well, let's talk about the chance that Chile goes in the direction of Argentina. Eduardo Leviati wrote a piece recently for AQ spelling out this scenario for Chile, where it becomes a country that spends perpetually beyond its means and ends up trapped in a middle-income scenario where it just loses the dynamism that Chile of the last 20 years has had. And then again, you have to remember that Argentina is among the most developed countries in Latin America. It has not reached its potential and is probably worse off now than it was uh, 40 years ago or 60 years ago in relative terms, but it's still among the most developed countries in Latin America. So I, I think that's the most likely scenario. And then the other scenario is that Chile has a backlash or experiences a backlash and this they is, end up voting for this is the Brazil scenario. Order candidate. Yeah. And this is where somebody goes, this is basically where the electorate gets scared and kind of votes hard right. Right. Who would that be in a Chilean context? Is that cast? No, I don't think it's going to be Jose Antonio Cast. Um, I think it's going to be the equivalent of a uh, Bolsonaro, but in the Chilean context. So I think it's more likely going to be somebody from within the political establishment that hasn't um, had that big of a role um, in the past and that will mix a component of inclusive populism um, with... Uh, market-friendly policies. Yeah, I guess, yeah, I mean, when I see Chile, I see a country that has accomplished so much, not just over the last 30 years, but even if you back up the lens and take in the last 60, 70 years, it was a country that was, in even in my lifetime, so poor. Um, but it always had democratic traditions. Uh, the Pinochet period was kind of this incredibly violent and wild exception to in Chilean history. I mean, you, you'd, you'd agree with that, right? Yeah, yeah. And so you look at the problem solving over the last 30 years, a country that not only saw its economy grow in a dynamic way, but was able to have this peaceful return to democracy, was able to make the best progress in Latin America on most social indicators, was able to cut extreme poverty from I think it was 38% of the population in 1990 to single digits today. And, you know, I know that sometimes societies take a wrong turn, but I guess I just have this faith in the country to kind of digest this moment, too, and continue on that road that it seemed to be on, which was, you know, Portugal or... Right. Or, or Italy, if you will. Okay, so, but the problem with Latin American countries is that when you have high levels of inequality, you can always go back to where you were, sort of have a relapse. Your bad old and, habits. Right. Um, and that's the problem that Chile wasn't able to address uh, appropriately. Chile remains a very classist society, class-based society. Upward mobility opportunities are very limited. The elites have always been the same elites. The children of the elites are the members of the elite. So Chile's problem is that didn't, the country didn't do enough to reduce inequality. And now, when the opportunity was there to actually do something about it, we are 
we have decided that the way we will do it is through writing a new constitution. So finally, Patricio, if it's not, if the solution to this structural problem that goes back decades, if not centuries in Chile, is not a new constitution, what is it? Well, you have to implement economic policies that produce redistribution. You have to have market-friendly rather than business-friendly policies. You I'm sorry, you're going to have to explain what you mean by that. A business-friendly policy is a policy that will favor corporate interests. A market-friendly policy is a policy that will favor competition. Um, when you have competition, consumers benefit. Um, but in Chile's society today, consumers feel that they always get the short end of the stick. And in many regards, they do. But is that is that radical enough, given the kind of structural inequality that you're describing? I mean, aren't the demands of the protesters things like the way the pension system is set up, the way, you know, basically education is, is so much of that is in the private sector and people have to indebt themselves okay, in so order to get there? A new constitution will have a negative impact on economic growth. Uh, the government also introduced a tax reform that will increase taxes by about 1% of GDP. I, I think the solution was a simpler solution, and that was, okay, you're going to have to contribute more, the wealthy elites, we're going to increase your taxes, but we're going to give you sufficient guarantees that the your investment will produce results. So you will pay more, but you will also be better off. The idea was to better distribute the golden eggs, not to kill the goose that lays the golden eggs. Well, thank you for listening to the America's Quarterly podcast. You can read the pieces we referenced by Patricio at americasquarterly.org. Finally, if you enjoyed this episode, please leave us a review, give us a rating, and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. The America's Quarterly podcast is produced by Brendan O'Boyle and Katie Hopkins. America's Quarterly is an independent, not-for-profit publication of America's Society and the Council of the Americas. Thank you for joining us. <laughs>